welcome to this edition of the ASHA podcast. I'm Fred Wyand with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. You know, I've lost count how many times we've done cervical cancer updates, whether it's about new tests, uh, revamped screening guidelines, or changes to the vaccine indications. Uh, And there's been a lot that's changed over the last decade plus, and so we're going to continue with this episode to get you up to speed with the most recent changes, some things that happened last fall, uh, fall of 2018. And I'll tell you, it is my distinct pleasure to welcome back to the podcast one of Ash's dearest friends, Dr. Ina Park. Dr. Park is an associate professor uh, at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine in the Department of Family and Community Medicine. And she's going to sort out what's been happening in terms of screening women for cervical cancer and one really big change that promises to open HPV vaccination to a much broader segment of the population. So, Dr. Park, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Oh, it's always my pleasure to be with you, Fred. It's just lovely to talk with you again. So let's just jump right in. Let's start with the changes to cervical cancer screening guidelines. It used to be so simple. I mean, go for an annual pap test. There you go. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, but over the last few years, we've seen this evolve pretty dramatically, I'd say. I mean, now the options include screening a woman every five years with a pap or an HPV test combo for women 30 and older, or every three years using a pap alone. And then, as I mentioned last fall, um, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, they updated their cervical cancer screening guidelines to include yet another option. This was screening women between the ages of 30 and 65 every five years with an HPV test alone. That's a lot. Uh, and this is known as HPV primary testing. So we can use a PAP alone. We can use an HPV test alone or a PAP HPV co-test. Uh, uh, unpack that for us. Is there a preferred approach? I mean, what's the bottom line we really need to communicate to women about all that? I know. I feel like for a consumer, as a woman, this must be very confusing because I yeah. think one would wonder, well, am I getting the best care? Am I getting the best test possible? And so, you know, the thing about these three options is that there isn't right now a preferred method that's recommended on a national level. And the reason that they sort of presented these three options sort of on equal footing is that there are pros and cons of each approach. Now, with a PAP alone, you know, you're less likely to get false positive results, but, you know, you, it's not as sensitive as something that's employing an HPV test, so you have to do it more frequently. And so with the, with the HPV test, you know, they do pick up infections even if those are low-level infections, but sometimes those lead to unnecessary follow-up procedures. And so I feel like the bottom line is, you know, your provider is going to offer most likely just one of these options, possibly two. And essentially, as long as you're getting something, it's certainly better than getting nothing, and there is not a preferred approach right now. So the bottom line to women is that go ahead and go in for your screening, If your provider says come in every three years, that's probably because they're using a PAP-only approach. And if they're saying to come in every five years and they're using one of these other approaches that uses an HPV test. And so I wouldn't be concerned as a woman that, uh, you know, oh, they're not asking me to come in frequently enough, and that means, you know, I must be getting some sort of substandard screening. Really, any of these is okay and um, is certainly preferred uh, to not getting anything at all. 
Yeah, so that and, – and that – thank you for framing it that way because I was wondering if maybe the real take-home here is the important thing is not so much how you're being screened. It's just that you're being screened consistently and appropriately. Exactly. That's it. Okay, very good. Well, yeah. tell me something about healthcare providers, your colleagues. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has to be confusing to a number of them as well. I mean, what are the messages for, for health professionals? So, you know, I think a lot of these decisions are made um, by the healthcare organization on an administrative level. And so I think some providers, if you have a seat at that table to provide input into this, you know, one of the advantages, I would say, for using, for example, an HPV-only approach is that we might be able to do home-based testing, for example, for women that have previously been hard to screen. And there are certainly organizations, um, both nationally and internationally, who are trying that approach. So I would say, though, that essentially, you know, regardless of what option your organization says that, you know, you're going to be offering, um, I think any of them are fine. I would say that the advantage of using a, an HPV-only approach would be, you know, possibly getting at those women that are harder to reach by allowing them to do self-collection and possibly home-based testing. Okay, very good. So let's do a quick segue to the HPV vaccine. And we've got an Mm -hmm. HPV vaccine, Gardasil 9, that Mm -hmm. protects against nine types of the virus, as the name implies, to the seven high-risk types that you find with about 90%, I think, of cervical cancers globally, and then also a couple of low-risk types that are associated with genital and anal warts. And the big news, also from last fall, uh, the FDA Food and Drug Administration, they expanded the age range of those for whom the vaccine is approved to include both males and females through age 45. And previously that indication was just ages 9 through 26. So what, what, what are we to make of this? I mean, why would somebody in their 30s or 40s want this vaccine? I mean, haven't they already been exposed to HPV? You know, those are great questions, Fred. Uh, I think, so taking a step back, you know, there were safety data in, um, you know, for this expanded age group up through age 45, but in terms of what the clinical trial data showed, um, they really only included um, people up to the age of 26. But certainly, you know, as we know, there are people out there with all ranges of sexual expression and sexual experience And so it is certainly possible that somewhere in their 30s and 40s may not have been exposed to HPV, number one. Um, Number two, even if you have had sexual experience, it's possible that you haven't been exposed to all of the types that are currently in in the vaccine. So you could receive some protection against the types that you haven't already been exposed to. You know, just like the other vaccines that used to be on the market, uh, the bivalent Cervarix and the quadrivalent Gardasil or the four-valent Gardasil, you know, the nine-valent Gardasil 9 doesn't actually give you any protection once you've already been exposed. So these are vaccines that are preventative and you have to be vaccinated before you've actually been exposed. But there's certainly, you know, a reason to believe that somebody in their 30s or 40s might not have all the types of the virus and could get some protection. Okay, and so it might especially be valuable just as I was listening to you. I was thinking uh, maybe for somebody who's entering a new relationship or getting back in the dating game, perhaps. Can I tell you a story about that, Fred, actually? Yeah. I was giving a, a lecture on this topic uh, 
in Washington, D.C., and a, a state legislator, who I'm not going to mention, um, came up to me and said, you know, I'm recently divorced. My first partner was, you know, her, was, a, was her husband, and now she's back on the, on the market again, and she's over 40, and was asking about getting this vaccine off-label. Um, and now that it's FDA approved, she could, you know, just get it actually and ask her provider for it. But, you know, she, that's a great example of somebody who had a very small number of sexual partners and then now is back out and going to be, you know, possibly getting exposed to HPV again because they're newly sexually active after having been just with a monogamous partner for many years. Okay, very good. Let me ask you about the concept of herd immunity, which seems like a weird term, but I've been, I know we've got, <laughs> you know, since the, since the first version of an HPV vaccine was available way back in 2006, it's hard to believe it's been mm-hmm. that long. You know, we've got mm-hmm. a lot of data now, you know, and, and we're learning more and more. And this concept, as I understand it, is that even those who don't get a vaccine may still benefit and be protected because so many others in the population are getting it. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? What do we know about that? Sure. Um, you know, the, when we think about herd immunity, you know, I always think about like cattle or animals or something like that. I think one right, way to right. think about it might also be like community immunity. Do you know what I mean? Like the, if, if a lot of people in the population are getting vaccinated against something, then there may just be less of it sort of circulating around. And, you know, a recent study actually that, that just came out about a week ago, so the 22nd of January in uh, the journal Pediatrics, actually showed that both girls and young women who got vaccinated, as well as those that didn't get vaccinated, actually showed um, less HPV infection with the types that are in the vaccine. So that's pointing to the fact that even the people that are not getting vaccinated may actually get some protection simply because the amount of HPV in the community overall is going to go down. But I have to say that I don't want people to think like, oh, I'm just going to rely on the community or the herd for my immunity. I think if you, for, to get the best protection against cervical cancer for yourself, the best thing to do is get vaccinated. Okay. Very good. Thank you for that. And, and, and I like your term community <laughs> immunity a lot better than herd immunity because you're right. You think <laughs> like cows and that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you something. And, and I, I asked this with a little bit of trepidation because I hate to almost you know, plant the seed, but do we have any idea if the vaccine has any impact on sexual behavior? I mean, what do we, what do we know about that? Oh, I know. And I can't believe we actually even have to talk about this, Fred. Right. But I think when the vaccine was first introduced, so way back in 2006, there was some concern that, you know, parents are not going to want to give this to their children because are their kids going to see this as a license to go out and have unprotected sex and, you know, go crazy because they have protection against HPV. And so I'll have to say that both studies in the U.S. as well as a recent study in Canada that was just published has looked at that and now you know, when we look at these data or this information, we're looking at the population as a whole. And so some of these people are vaccinated, some of these people are not. But generally speaking, in both the U.S. and Canada, you know, unsigned pregnancy has gone down. In, in Canada, especially where they looked at this, you know, in a little bit more detail, they saw that actually condom use has gone up and actually unprotected sex in general has gone down. And so 
what we're seeing is actually sexual behavior is getting safer. And so the idea that the vaccine is somehow fueling high-risk behavior is nonsense. We just don't have any information that would support that idea. Yeah, I remember there was a poster uh, back when we were having the great condom debates that said something to the effect of um, condoms don't make people have more sex any more than uh, seed ducks make or make people more likely to drive faster or something, you know. Exactly, so, right. Yeah. So similar, okay. similar idea. That's a great analogy. Sure. Uh, so the last thing I want to ask you about the vaccine is I know the Australians have been leaders in getting their folks vaccinated. I don't, I mean, they, I mean, I know the vast majority of their young people uh, have been receiving the vaccine for a long time. Correct. And they've seen drastic decreases in both HPV infections and, as you would expect, associated diseases like cervical cancer. So are we at a point where we can really start talking about the E word eliminating cervical cancer? What do you think? Mm-hmm. That's a great question, Fred. And in fact, you know, at the last, HPV meeting, the international HPV meeting, which was held in Australia, the Australians actually presented some data about this. This is a a huge goal of theirs. And so when we talk about elimination, now not talking about zero cases, you know, elimination is really defined by different standards. And so what the Australians are, are using as a goal is they want to see less than four cases for every 100,000 women every year. And so, you know, when we talk about, well, you know, what does that look like? I mean, right now, compared to right now, you know, in the U.S., for example, and in Australia now, we're close to about six cases, six or seven cases per 100,000 women. And now that's still a rare cancer. Um, You know, in other African countries, for example, we're talking more like 30 or 40 cases per 100,000 women. So, um, already we're getting down to a level where we're talking about cervical cancer as a rare cancer. And actually, even next year, the Australians estimate that they're going to have levels that fall below the level of a rare cancer. But by 2028, they're actually estimating, you know, and that, that's really not very many, that's less than 10 years away, they're actually estimating that they're going to fall below four cases for every 100,000 women in Australia. And so because of their high vaccination rates, and they have a gender-neutral vaccination program where they're vaccinating both males and females, I think that they're going to get there. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. And, I, and, and I'm glad you pointed out the, uh, the burden of cervical cancer in, in the developing world uh, because the vaccine, gosh, the promise globally is even greater than what we have uh, here in the U.S., um, and that's that's something really to keep in mind. It's just so important to get the vaccine out there to the people who need it the most. Absolutely. And, you know, and the WHO um, is actually really actively engaged in this. And they have, you know, by 2030, they really want to get 90% of girls vaccinated by the age of 18. And that is obviously targeting those developing countries where cervical cancer is a huge issue because of lack of, um, you know, screening infrastructure and good medical care. Right. And, you know, uh, just one last thought, too. I know sure. that uh, even though the vaccine now has official approval through age 45, uh, mm-hmm. the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, ACIP, the ones who advise the federal government about 
vaccines, a vaccine uh, preventable uh, diseases, uh, they're going to be talking about this uh, some point this year probably. I would imagine sooner rather than later, and you know, we may, who knows, it may not be too long before we get some formal recommendations from them about, you know, uh, using the vaccine in, in the older age group up to age 45. Uh, so I'm really hoping that once all of that gets sorted out and the dust settles a bit, maybe you, we can chat again and you can maybe give us some insights about uh, what ACIP says. Sure, and they've already discussed it, but they didn't actually make a vote. And that vote is going to be really important for listeners because if the vote actually, if they actually say that it's recommended, for example, then insurers will need to cover it um, without, you know, a share of cost for for the patient. Whereas if they don't recommend it, then people can still receive it because the FDA has approved it, and so it can be used. But an insurance company may not need to cover the cost of it, and so. What the ACIP says is going to make a big difference for the consumer in terms of um, how much cost they might have to bear or whether or not they can get the vaccine completely covered. All right. Well, I have an idea. I'm going to be calling you uh, in the not too distant future. So. Hey, thank you. You know for how your to reach me. Today. Absolutely. And we covered a lot of ground, and I'm, you know, I guess things are going to change, so we'll be talking some more. Dr. Ina Park, thank you so much. Thank you, Fred. And thanks to everybody who downloads and listens. We'll have more to come, so check back often. Uh, find us online at ashasexualhealth.org and, of course, on Twitter at InfoAsha and be our friend on Facebook. Um, sign up on the website to get our updated email, and we'll let you know what's happening in the world of sexual health, including new resources as we roll them out, things like this podcast with Dr. Park. So until next time, this is Fred Wine for Asha. So long, everybody.